Hello, Assalamu Alaikum, and welcome to How to Pakistan. So this is the first 2017 episode. It is the first 2017 episode. Welcome to 2017. What a great year it's been so far. <laughs> Has it really? Has no. Has it been good for no. you? <laughs> no. It's been, I mean, it's been okay. It's, it could be worse, but I don't know. I've prepared myself that this year is going to be worse than the last. You're such a... I have to say that I find that to be incredibly negative. I mean, we kind of... You know, the risk in talking about the New Year is that, you know, we're going to sort of overlap with the stuff we said about the New Year yeah. in, in the previous year, yeah. in the old year. Yes. So, um, so I don't know. We, I don't know if we should subject thing, I mean, our listeners to that. I mean, for whatever, I mean, the reasons we had last time is that even if the New Year is not significant in any way, people tend to make up their minds that they have these resolutions that somehow they're going to make the next period better. And uh, that's something worthwhile to hold on to. But I think the thing that I found interesting, and I have to say, I just can't get over it, is this whole thing about Trump. Whereas I held on that I thought, this guy is really smart. He doesn't believe any of this. He's holding on this really crazy behavior on Twitter. And the fact that it continues and that it is showing that you've got somebody who... You know, Hillary Clinton's objection to him being president, that if you can bait someone on Twitter, he shouldn't have nuclear codes. I've just cannot believe that how true it stands to be. Apparently today, I mean, he's taken his time off to criticize Meryl Streep. Uh, before that, the same sort of thing that he's had about the media, he continues to do. And... Uh, I'm just wondering is once he gets in, because it's ultimately astonishing that somebody like him, who I presume has a lot to hide, is as uh, belittling, as pugnacious as he is with his own intelligence community. It's all stuff that is going to make up for at least internationally a very interesting year. I mean, I think that it's... I think it's a great statement on on your on on your innocence that you would say that he has something to hide, or you know, given given that he has so much to hide, that he would uh, that he would be more careful. I mean, I think that actually what he's doing is establishing he's establishing new norms for behavior. Right? He's saying that if you have stuff to hide, don't worry about it. You don't have to feel ashamed. Just go all out and attack everyone left, right, and center attack people so ridiculously and so vilely that people forget the things that you've done. People forget how and where you've grabbed them from. And people think about just the thing you said in the last 15 minutes. So more he's, than... he's, de- <laughs> he's redefining the public space. I think he's shown that America is truly the land of opportunity where even billionaires can become president. <laughs> and now where internet trolls can become president. So I think I, I'm just fascinated. And, and, you know, since you know about this more, the thing that's been going through my mind is that he's, he talks about strategy, but he's very transaction-based in many ways. And I'm wondering what that means for us. And, you know, he's going to want more to show. And uh, it's interesting also, it's becoming a bit clearer, at least to people like me, how much the Chinese pivot is actually uh, 
hugely important to Pakistan in these particular times. You know, I, I, I think that I have a slight sort of complaint with, with folks that constantly have this belittling view of Pakistan. Of course, I mean, I may have the same view, but <laughs> for, the sake of, for the sake of the discussion, I think there's, uh, there's more than one way to look at, you know, um, to look at this issue of pivot. Right? Yeah. Like, one way to look at it is that, yeah, the China pivot, and I'm assuming by China pivot you mean how China is kind of reorienting itself for the next hundred years yeah. or the next quarter century or whatever. I mean, I think that it's maybe giving China too much credit because it basically, I think this narrative, and I mean, I have to say that this government, our military, our establishment, our like our society has bought into this hook, line, and sinker. But it almost sounds like, well, you know, Pakistan really doesn't have any agency of its own. <coughs> we don't really have any ideas of our own. We don't really have any will of our own. When the Americans come and dangle a few dollars and a, and a couple of F-16s, you know, we, whoop, there it is, we're there. And then, you know, the Chinese come and they make us a JF-17, you know, with a few Pakistani engineers, and now suddenly, you know, and, and they promise us a bunch of roads, and now suddenly we're all China's. I think life is a little bit more complicated, and I think Pakistan does have actually quite a lot of agency. So, for example, I think that, okay, you know, CPEC is China, but what about Carrot? You know, what about, you know, what Russia is doing? What about the things that have come out of Zamir uh, Kabulov's mouth over the last sort of six, seven, eight weeks? Mm -hmm. What about... What about the improved relationship between the U.S. and Russia as a precursor for the kinds of relationship sort of dynamics that we'll have between Pakistan and the U.S.? But I think what I meant is, I, I agree with you, I think what I meant is that it's maybe an evolution of my own understanding where I thought, you know, when I looked at the whole One Belt, One Rolled initiative and I just thought, okay, we're a small piece in what would be a massive continental program and... And now I'm slowly realizing, and maybe when you're talking about agencies, I'm slowly realizing how important actually CPEC is to a wider OBAR or whatever that abbreviation stands for. And um, in some cases, you know, sort of the promise, the potential promise, that realignment as well. I agree with you, but I just think that irrespective of however agency we have in the whole process, it's going to be a very uncertain time because everyone who's moving away into new areas, it's untested waters. It's going to be something that I think everyone, not just us, but, you know, whether it's India, whether it's uh, Afghanistan, Iran, all these players put together. It's going to be, and that's the thing that I just think is that maybe the next decade or so is going to be at least, if not bad, but it's going to be fraught, definitely. I think uh, the next decade, yeah, look, I, I think we're already there. Uh, the fact that we had to, that we had to lean on parliament yeah. to make the decision about Yemen. Yeah. But, but, you know, the fact that the decision that was made was the one that was made, right? So I always think it's for a transition economy and a transition society, which is what I guess Every society and every economy is constantly in transition yeah. if, if, from one perspective. But I think really we are pivoting in Pakistan. And so what I would call is the Pakistan pivot is cowardice and inertia versus 
uh, boldness and momentum, right? And it's not always something that every Pakistani will agree. Like even you and I might not agree, yeah. but I think that the last two years has been a, has been a clear and present pivot. And if we don't acknowledge it, I think yeah. we're just we're. Although I'm glad you're bringing it up, I think the Yemen case was a. We probably won't use the word pivot, but I came back and I was impressed. Right? It was a situation where it seemed that you know there would be an inordinate amount of influence. And we were talking about Pakistan's agency saying no at that particular time was incredibly difficult. And for once, you know, where you found relative across-the-board agreement in taking a decision such as that, uh, I think, let's say, when we go back and try to count the times where we were sagacious, we were, you know, forward-thinking, this would count amongst it. And I think, you know... uh, the issue of cowardice, I'm sure, like, we did a few please, please, we have Amare Majburiya, Yevo, and, you know, there are, like, a hundred problems, whatever, but I just, I come away thinking with that, that, you know, there, when we think about, you know, untested issues of whether we can be forward-looking or not, that was amazing. That was something that, you know, I feel we should have been proud of, and we are. Well, yeah, absolutely, I think, uh, rightly so. Uh, although I think there's a lot of crow-eating that must be happening now because so many sort of pro-Pindi uh, types, I should I should qualify that in many ways. You know, I certainly consider myself as pro-Pindi as I am pro-Multan. <laughs> <laughs> but, uh, but uh, you know, there was a lot of folks that were like, oh, don't give parliament credit for this. This was the army that, you yeah. know. And this was Raheel Sharif that was, you know, and of course, we've, 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 we've seen, uh, we've seen stuff. Yeah. Um, we, we see a lot of stuff, but let me, let me ask you this. You know, you say that, you know, we were sagacious uh, yes. and that that was a new thing for us. Yeah. Tell me this. It's September-ish, October-ish, 2001. Um, and there's a choice, I guess, between, I guess, right? Yeah. I'm assuming that there's actually a choice. There's a choice between kind of playing along with Uncle Sam and throwing our lot in with the Taliban. Yeah. Is, would that be an accurate binary? Yeah, yeah. Uh, yeah. W- did we make a sagac- sagacious choice back then? So that's an interesting one because in hindsight... Hey, it's zero, know. one. You don't, get to, you don't get to do that. <laughs> well, seriously, in hindsight, what do you yeah. think? I think yes. I think so it was yes. a smart call. So I think yes, it was a smart call okay. because I actually believed that the threat of military force was something that was, could have been was, used. It was present. It was clear and present. Yes. I have a trickier one. I, I think this is where you might you might falter a bit. Okay. In, in the sense, you might give me the wrong answer. Right. So far, you're doing great, buddy. <laughs> <laughs> I'm passing your test. <laughs> <laughs> Absolutely, but it's gonna get it's gonna get tough. Huh. It's uh, it's May. Yeah. Uh, it's 1998. Yeah. It's hot. You know. Yeah. It's 98, you know. Yeah. It's May. Yes. Yeah, India has just proven that it is not a eunuch yeah. anymore. Yeah. Uh, I, I believe in the words of Bal Thakere. Yes. Um, Pakistan, I suppose, I guess, to some people, has a choice. Yeah. Um, and it chose to uh, to whiten the hills of Chahi. Yes. With uh, radioactive material. Yeah. Okay, so... So you're informed today, right? You're you're batting well, you're defending, and your tuk-tuks are... Small runs are quite good, actually. So that one... Okay. If it was me at that time, 
I wouldn't have done it, right? And I wouldn't have done it, and uh, and that's partly because of just sort of my ideological moorings. And but now that I look at it, I look at the way that we've slid, and not necessarily just because of external factors, just because we were also partly not running the state. We we've got a hundred problems. In retrospect. I hate to say it, but nuclear weapons is the only thing that has kept the coffers going, that has kept interest, that has kept you know, uh, us safe now that you've got a belligerent India. And you know, I hate to say it, but I would have said, don't do it. But now in retrospect, I think the right decision was made. However, I think it was made for the wrong reasons. You're doing so well. <laughs> I, I, I'll, you're Pakhtun, so I give you the qualification. <laughs> I'm a Pakistan se mobate. Lekin, how I be I get it. Yeah. I, I get it. I, you know, I feel the same way. Yes. I feel. I mean, yeah. I also feel like as a Pakhtun. Yeah. You know, <laughs> I have to qualify stuff. Yeah. Now let me let's 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 take it to the next level. Yeah. It's 1988. Yeah. Plane just blew up. Yeah. Sadness and joy yeah. both interspersed in the air. Yeah. Uh, country has a choice, can go in for a uh, continuation of that terrible era, or it can open up the dawn yeah. of the worst era of corruption and, and uh, nepotism yeah. ever seen in the country. I'm being facetious, of yes. course. The choice, Pakistan did make a choice. The establishment made a conscious choice in 1988. Yeah. One was to allow an election in yeah. which it was clear Benedict Bhutto was going to be your, your yeah. prime minister. Or two, there could have been delays, there could have been a new guy... It, what, what, what do you think? So, the so, right call or the wrong call? So, one, the right call was made, but I don't think they had that great a choice. I mean, even under Zia, right, he had to let in party-less elections. There was Janejo. There was an essence of that, you know, we've stretched this pretty far. What I'm saying, yeah. I guess the point, why did I do yeah. this kind of silly exercise, right? To show that, you know, we've made good choices in the is past. That, is yeah. that actually, there isn't, legitimate narrative yeah. of criticism and I think that you yeah. and I kind of the the backbones of our careers are built on yeah. you know calling out mistakes that we've made in yeah. our history yeah and even in this in the in the examples that I've cited as you rightly did there's yeah. a lot that we could pick apart because yeah. these aren't really binaries yeah. it's a lot more complex than the way that I presented yeah. it but if we were to judge Pakistan's behavior yeah I mean, there's one or two things that are really egregious, yeah. but this is not like a serial sort of, you know, sick puppy. Yeah. You know, I don't like this narrative. I yeah. don't think it's true. I think Pakistan is as stupid and myopic as the next country. Yeah. It's made one or two really bad mistakes, but, yeah. you know, guess what? Almost every other country on the planet has too. Yeah. And yes... Other countries' mistakes shouldn't concern us. We should be concerned with our country's mistakes. Yes, absolutely, and that's kind of what we do. But I just think it's worth just stepping back and saying, you know what? When push came to shove on a lot of ch- lot of choices that Pakistan made, A, it made the only choice available. So actually, whether yeah. it was a nuclear weapons choice or the election in 88 yeah. or uh, even not going to Yemen. Yeah. I mean, the correct way to do this is actually not to pat ourselves on the back and to say – was there really another choice? Of course yeah. you had to say no, yeah. right? And so I guess what I'm saying and is... And even surrounding that, there's the other issue is that why did you find yourself in that exactly. particular why did you, why did you be? Why, yeah. were you, why were you forced to go to parliament and yeah. make this grand exactly. show, right? Yeah. Why were you forced to, in, in retrospect, uh, you know, I think there was a minister, Pirzada Saab, who, 
who had to who had to be you know knocked back a peg yeah. for for being too uh, too too candid about his opinions. I mean, it's an amazing country in which you can say anything you want yeah. about the chief justice, yeah. anything you want about the prime minister, yeah. pretty much anything you want about the army chief now as well, frankly. I mean, not that I don't not buy. in the same volume. Yeah. Yeah. No, 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 no. Not in the same volume yeah. and not to the same extent. But there's a lot more I think freedom. you can post-retirement, definitely. <laughs> <laughs> no, there's no doubt about that. But but, but the point being, you can, you can say a lot about, you know, leaders of political parties, but somehow, if you were to criticize, you know, um, you know, a foreign country's royal family, then that somehow becomes, you know, cause for, you know, getting knocked back a peg as a minister. Yeah. So it's a, it's a fascinating, I think it's a fascinating thing. Uh, but, but I do think that we don't need to constantly berate ourselves. Uh, this country's made the best choices it could in really, really bad circumstances. And so, some of those choices could have been and should have been different. So I, I think also, I think you're maybe hinting at one thing, which is, so I find it interesting that there's a lot of criticism I see sometimes online directed at, you know, small numbers of people who say you're always complaining, nothing the government's ever done, and, you know, we need to feel good. But I, I do think that, you know, they provide us an essential service that, what they say as unpopular, even when, you know, there's something you should celebrate. The fact is that you can pick a lot of holes into, you know, the whole Zarbeazab thing, you know, some parts are left out, whatever. But by and large, you know, where we are today, quite frankly, ask anyone in 2013, nobody would have believed that we could have done this this fast in claiming back some space or, you know, actually operating kinetically against them as we have. But let's count all the ways, because I think it's also uh, damaging for us to just look at it from a security standpoint, right? Yeah, yeah, exactly. But that's the main problem, right? The main problem I, or most people also agree on, is that if you are not doing anything to stem the tide of the material, because the problem today, fine, we've got the Taliban, Pakistani Taliban, we've got uh, these groups, but, you know, the real problem is the future, and the future is Safura, right? Self-radicalization. You've got these groups that are tying into these groups, and unless you do something to stem that material, and the problem with that is that they operate within a fringe where most people don't agree with them, believe them, but they're not willing to necessarily, you know, find a way. And it, I, I think it's next to impossible for them to do anything about it. So I, I had this argument with a few friends in law enforcement and in yeah. the civil service recently. <clears throat> My argument is that there's not just a problem of the wrong public policy, but also the wrong tools of public policy. So I guess in short, I'm saying we don't really have the capacity or the sophistication within our state structures to actually tackle uh, SAW diseases. I, I think the law exists. No, no, right? I mean, that's not what I'm talking right? about. I know, I know what you're talking about. I agree. And I think, look, I'll tell you, the thing I found really interesting is that the military courts just finished. And with the military courts, the military courts are not a tool for dispensing justice, right? They're in secret. You can't tell whether a fair trial will has happened. They don't even get the scrutiny. Killed a bunch of tangos, bro. But that's just it, right? When you look at what the military courts did right after, the whole point was just, when we talk about not justice just being done, it should be seen. In this case, we don't know if justice was done, but a very effective message was sent out that the state is manning up once again. It's yeah, and it was through the wrong. So it arm. wasn't passive cowardice exactly. Anymore. It right? was bold, aggressive, yeah. sort of like you know, let's do something. Yeah. 
But in these two years, what are the main problems? And here, you know, I do blame the civil side necessarily because, look, ATCs were built. Initially, the idea was to have... 97, right? 97. And the idea was to have zero inventory. You get one case, you finish it. They now have the same backlog that the whole uh, system does. And what does Pakistan do? Pakistan believes that the nature of the punishment is a deterrent. We know it's not. What is a deterrent is the assurance that the law will be applied. And you've got a massive acquittal rate in the ATCs. You've got a backlog. And the biggest problem is to get a case taken seriously, the definition of terrorism is so wide that, you know, if I leave here and, you know, pull a gun on you, steal your money, even that's terrorism. You've got a regular court, regular laws for that. So, but they don't work, which is they why don't work. we saw like these kidnapping cases where initially there used to be a debate about whether a kidnapping case does or doesn't belong in ATCs. There's no debate anymore. None. You directly you go yeah. directly to the ATC yeah. and you plead to the court that this yeah. has terrorized my family and yeah. my loved ones, and therefore I, I sub, you know I, I hereby yeah. submit that this should be admitted, and it is admitted. Yeah. There's a larger this 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 whole discussion kind of. One way to refract it into into something slightly larger, like you may think it's a tangent, and maybe it yeah. is, but think about this: you had regular courts; they weren't working. You had anti-terrorism courts; they were supposed to provide speedy and efficient justice for yeah. the most egregious cases of Major violations, crimes. yeah, violations of law and order. Yeah. Then, two thousand fourteen, December December sixteen, two thousand fourteen happened. And in January 2015, we determined that actually the regular courts don't work, the ATCs don't work, now we need military courts. Yeah. It's January 9th now, 2017, two, almost two years to the date later. Yeah. We're now debating, or, or, or actually we're not now debating military courts, but we know that they have ceased to exist yeah. as per the Constitution. Uh, I think there's a robust debate that isn't quite bubbling up in the in the national discourse partly because we're too busy talking about panama every night absolutely and, and so and so nobody really has had a discussion including myself i blame myself as much as anyone else we're not really talking about the military courts and maybe there's kind of a uh, a subtle sort of you know um you know signal from the establishment or or even even the prime minister's office and the government you know we shouldn't be talking about this but really if you think about it the two-year period was essentially designed to do two things. One, because there was a cognizance that this was violative of the spirit of the Constitution, yeah. it had to have a sunset clause. Yeah. And two, because you were dealing with an emergency situation, you were going to fast-track what needed to be done today yeah. for those two years. Yeah. And in the interim, you were going to rebuild the institutions of dispensing and delivering justice. Yeah. How much criminal justice sector reform have you seen in the last Perfect. two years? So this is my thing also. I agree. I think one of the problems is also when we look at the government with the PMLN, I think fine in terms of delivery of projects and things like that. But however, what is symptomatic is also right now the government has just issued an ordinance to amend the NAB. Right now, this is ridiculous. The, the, I believe in the plea bargain. And I'll tell you why. I believe in it because it, that is an essential... It's because you're liberal. You hate Pakistan. Uh, because, yes. No, because... <laughs> the, no, it's a recognition of the problems of the state and to get the best outcome possible. Right? 
you use a plea bargain to save state resources. You might not be able to prosecute your, you have problems and evidence. You get something. Now, the problem was that the law was really problematic when it came to voluntary return, which is somebody who may have an idea that some a case might be registered against me. He just comes forward, gives the money back, no penalty, no questions asked, and, you know, the thing is over. Now, that, that loophole has existed for a decade. And it took the media almost wrongly because they confused plea bargain with voluntary return. And, you know, the government has just done an ordinance. These things need to be legislated, think, thought about. And this is where we have the same problem that occurs with the regular courts as well. Because one of the reasons why also, I mean, we don't know if justice was dispensed, but what we do know is that the best, a really strong message was sent. But, like, even the regular courts, they, for this particular case and the way society works, they need an element of secrecy. You even have to change the nature of the ATCs to some degree because you have judges who can be, you know, influenced, who can be, you know, uh, pressurized. You've got witness problems. And there I see like an abandonment where legislation, discussions in parliament, and frankly, one of the problems is, of course, is that the majority of it is happening within the confines of a 32-minute talk show at 8 o'clock at night. <laughs> Look, I, I mean, I think the record on, on, on empowering and enabling the parliament is interesting. I mean, when when it's to squeeze uh, or, or slither out of the Saudi question... Send it to parliament. Send it to yeah. parliament. But when it's a matter of, you know, fundamental questions about the nature of the state and, uh, and the compact between individuals and institutions and how those compacts will be governed, yeah. And then, then suddenly there's ordinances. I mean, yeah. you saw, and you know, I wrote about this, and I'm, I've been quite exercised about it. I'll continue to, you know, be exercised about the Punjab uh, commissioner uh, ordinance. You know, that uh, yeah. basically reestablishes the the. DC and it's interesting, dodge. like what prompted that? Just that you've got local bodies; they're going to take time to sort themselves out. They're going to be pretty useless for a couple of years, and just to ensure delivery. You set back the whole system. No, but I... It's an election so gambit. I, I, well, I, I think it's interesting. You you suggest that it's to ensure delivery. Yeah. I mean, another way of interpreting that is to ensure uh, control. Right? But I, but I mean, I you're ascribing, one, you're ascribing a positive... Sure, but you're yeah. ascribing a positive motive to all this. Now, True. I actually happen to believe that it is, in fact... Like, yeah. I'm actually... I'm convinced that Shabash Sharif is genuinely interested in delivery. But his... His chosen tool of delivery runs against the grain of what we want to see at Absolutely. the local level. Because what we want to see is we want to see a Shabazz Sharif at every union council. Yeah. Right? And what we want is then for each of those Shabazz Sharifs to compete with each other to serve the people of their union councils. And then we want to see one of those guys win the contest between the five or six Shabazz Sharifs yeah. to become like the district Shabazz Sharif. Yeah. And then we want to see a competition between 35 or 36 Shabazz Sharifs at the district level in the Punjab to compete with each other, to bludgeon each other politically, not physically, yeah. politically. And politically how? Yeah. Not by handing out patronage or, yeah. or bad contracts, but by delivering essential services, yeah. building infrastructure, yeah. uh, creating you know a, a more hopeful environment in which young people have the possibility and the imagination in which they can succeed. 
And then they beat each other, yeah. you know, they club each other, you know, to political sort of oblivion until one Shabazz Sharif is left standing for the so prize. I, I, I'll tell you, I'll, I agree with this absolutely. And I'll tell you two tangential things which I believe, which is why I think the DC measure is also really problematic. One is I was speaking to someone, and you know, we've got a severe water problem. We discussed it in the last podcast as well. One of the big things is that because we don't have like local government... Uh, well, now I'm talking about outside the main metro capitals. You've got all these people who are boring directly for water, and that is killing the water table, right? This isn't allowed elsewhere. Once you have local government, you'll be able to ensure that that doesn't happen. That's just one small example. Mm-hmm. The second one is this is a domestic case of Tayyiba, where the judge's wife or the judge himself beat the child up. In that particular case, what would justice look like? Let's say we did punish the judge, we punish the wife. There's a larger problem at stake. One is that the child, the parents, sold her into bonded labor. We might ascribe that she has, their parents have extremely difficult financial circumstances, and that could be the case. But if it turns out those are not fit parents, that they are just parents who've used children as, you know, a cycle of resource that can, you know, stem them up for whatever and whatever reasons that they're... Then where does she go to? She needs to go to an orphanage. These are all local services. These are local services that won't be built. I mean, we're dependent on the private provision. You've got all these yatim khanas. You've got... I mean, in in the story of Idi, right, what an amazing man. He made the world's largest private ambulance service. But again, you know, while we celebrate that, you know, it tends to, the good work he did sort of created this numbness for us to decide why does a private man, a citizen, have to devote his life to giving this to everyone? This is Father Sand wrote a really interesting piece this weekend about this. You know, he said, I mean, if I was to present a synopsis, it would be something like, Imagine the quantum and the scale and the depth of failure in a society that needed an of the Sataridi. In a society That's a great that way of needed yeah. Malala Yousafzai. Yeah. In a society that needs Asman Jahangir. You know, yeah. In a society that needs these people. Yeah. What are we saying about what normal is here? Yeah. You know? And and I think that one thing that's common across I think across the supporters of all parties is a genuine kind of a singeing sort of really desperate uh, longing for a, a system and, and a society that actually worked, right? That actually was as was as outraged about, you know, the fact that you needed an ED as, as it should be. And I think that to, to the point that, you know, so many people seem to express this, this desperation with so much anger, I mean, it's... Like, it's totally legit, man. Like, you cannot have a country of 200 million people in which social services are being decided for uh, through meetings between BPS 19 officers sitting 400, 500, 600 miles away from where the action is. You know, you can't have these policies being decided by donors or donor-funded programs that are not rooted politically in the outcomes that, that will emerge, right? Yeah. And uh, we talk about local government. I mean, actually, local government principles also apply to our federal government. Not every decision that this country makes is for this country, yeah. right? 
And so these are larger questions of sovereignty and autonomy and where that autonomy and sovereignty will come from. But this brings me to another thing. Like one of the problems that I do have, like I increasingly as I look into it, CPEC, I do agree, brings a lot of promise. And and I also see... Yarek, I mean, just give you liberals one inch of daylight. Yeah. And in you go with the anti-China, <laughs> anti-CPAC nonsense. No, no, no. So, so here, nonsense. <laughs> so here, Was it not enough that we had Andrew Small on? Didn't he yes. tell you CPAC is good for us? <laughs> but, so, so, the thing is, you know, no, so... <laughs> Like when I look at it, you forget a point. Ah, I So the point is that what I wonder is that when we look, one of the things that does sort of get to me, like the objections that are being raised by, let's say, people around the projects, like in Balochistan and elsewhere, that has to be accommodated one hundred percent. And I think it's, there's the potential to actually weaken the federation if that's not done. But the second thing, which is, I find CPEC could be another 18th Amendment in one way. The 18th Amendment was good legislation, but it required a host of secondary leg- legislation for the provinces to properly do the jobs that they were subsequently given. However, you know, a lot of things are absent in that respect. The second thing with CPEC is we just talk about and watch it, everyone, you're going to get money into your pockets. It is going to require a lot of effort from so, Pakistan's end. Of course, I, I don't disagree with any of that. But if we, I mean, I think it's brilliant, you know, you bring up the example of the 18th Amendment. But I think we need to dig a little bit deeper, right? Because the 18th Amendment or the absence of adequate measures to really follow up yeah. on the 18th Amendment... There's more to it than just the political parties forgot, right? Yeah. I mean, in fact, uh, if you look at the people that were tasked by the parties to work on the 18th Amendment, you know, there was a whole constitutional amendment committee. Yeah. Razad Abani was in charge. Yeah. Essen Iqbal was on it. Etazaz Essen was on it. Basically, all the paralikas of all the parties were part of this of this 18th Amendment uh sort of group, right? Yeah. And these guys came up with the whole, whatever it was, 62 or 63, uh, or maybe 64 um, changes that were made to the Constitution yeah. through the 18th Amendment. And then, of course, to me, I always think that a discussion about the 18th Amendment is incomplete without considering the fact that the NFC was both revised and finalized after many, many years, and that it was done in a manner that was consistent with the principles of federalism. Here's a question. If you look at the way in which the parties allocated resources for the 18th Amendment, for the drafting of the 18th Amendment, that's not how parties have allocated resources for the running of the provinces. Yeah. This is really a critical point. The running running of the provinces is very much through the darbar of the family or the party in charge. Yeah. In the case of the ANP, you know, the equivalent of the darbar is, is, is kind of, the Hoti Balor sort of combine, right? Right? Yeah. Okay. In the case of PMLN, Balochistan, it's Sanal Azeri for now. I mean, we don't, you know. Yeah. And and the compact was with the National Party, and that was a Sharif's compact with Baloch nationalists, and they thought that those were the best guys to do it with. In the case of Sindh, we know that the PPP, 
basically in terms of financial matters in particular. Yeah. I mean, you know, Andrew Majid <laughs> and and, and, and uh, Tuppy, I don't know, I don't know yeah. his real name, and you know, Friyal, and you know, the Popo, the, the whole yeah. scene. That is the dominant uh, sort of influence yeah. in terms of resource allocation and decision making. And of course, in the Punjab, we know that it's Tahte yeah. Lahore, right? Yeah. So every decision is, and, and that's partly what explains the commissionerate yeah. uh, or the rebirth of the, of the DC Raj. Yeah. So what what you see is a all of fail metazad that there's dissonance between the conceptual structural changes that the parties enacted and the way in which that enactment or that structural change was then utilized. Yeah. So what I would propose is what we're looking for is bridging the gap between theory and practice or between structure and execution. And so the question I would, and, and this is a question, by the way, that, I was I was lucky enough to have a chance to actually discuss this, not in great length, but with Imran Khan himself. And, you know, I've discussed it on several occasions with the leadership of the PMLN and with the leadership Abhi, of, of the other parties. <laughs> Thank you. <very laughs> much. So, so, so if you talk to them about it, they're aware of it. Yeah. But it's not, I don't think they're about to do anything about it yeah. because there are very, very significant political, political forces yeah, yeah. That, are, that are tied into this. So, for example, Murad Ali Shah versus Qaim Ali Shah is the bridging of that distance double degree from Stanford yeah. comes into time uh, comes into office at like eight o'clock everybody starts working and sin suddenly and then within a few months of course the party leadership was oh what's going on yeah these paralikas are about to take over that's going to reduce the space for the patronage sort of dynamic that we've yeah. established over 30 40 50 years and we can't let that happen so Asif has to come back into the country yeah or Local government, yeah, okay, so the Supreme Court made us do the local governments. Here's how we're going to short-circuit it, yeah. D.C. Dodge, yeah. right? Or, you know, or what have you. That yeah. in every case, I, by the way, I, I neglected, amazingly, to mention PTI, and, of course, yeah. the influence of Bani Gala on the running of, of the KP government is... Significant. It's significant. Yeah. And, you know, there's the Tarin sort of group yeah. that's there as well. I mean, there's a lot of people that push back as well. It's a very interesting and robust and diverse dynamic. But the point being that the fundamental sort of, you know, tension here is that the conceptual idea of federalism and, and the people that were behind it within the parties, they have no executive authority where it matters. Yeah. They are the brains of these parties that are literally part of the parties to be those brains until those brains don't trickle down or trickle up, if you will, to the running of the provinces. You actually will continue to see this dissonance between the conceptual ideology or the or the not ideology, but the conceptual commitment to federalism and to good governance versus the reality of patronage-based, nepotism-based, sort of uh, disbursement-based development. Yeah. No, no, I agree absolutely. And it's sort of depressed me what you just said. Oh, come on. It's a new year. You're not supposed to be depressed. But uh, anyhow, I think we'll bring it to a close with that, with these absolutely... uh, that are you sure you want to leave? Oh, hold on. Yeah. Are you sure you want to leave on the negative? I'm, I'm just going to go and get under a quilt and stay there for a while. <laughs> <laughs> I'm going to go into my shower and curl <laughs> up into a little ball. Yeah. <laughs> and weep. <laughs> no, yeah. I don't think, but, but I guess... But you know, one thing is, this is interesting what you say, because I think one other thing that this adds to is that it also talks about the panacea that we ascribe to just legislating 
as well because I think there's some evidence now with some of the reforms that have come in, say in the Punjab, their legislation on women, you know, a number of others. The problem is that it doesn't even reach down. They're looking at older sets of laws. They've got a huge set of problems. I, I do agree that it's interesting because we often do say, you know, just get back into the assemblies, fix the issues that stem from, you know, improper lawmaking or lawmaking that's been thought too narrowly. But despite that, you're right, bridging the gap with the executive in a way that could actually work, which is part of the way why I'm such a believer in the plea bargain, because I believe that sort of bridged it in a way that, okay, there are people who could get out on basis of technicalities, but they're not assured of it. They're willing, you're able to get something out in return of letting them, you know, instead of letting them go scot-free whatsoever or letting them be, um, you know, absolved of everything just because of uh, lack of proper evidentiary procedure going through. No, I, I, I mean, I think it makes sense what you're saying about the plea bargain. In a sense, what you're saying is we have to kind of hold our nose and and swallow the bitter pill, if you yeah. will, of, of the reality that our outcomes are not going to be ideal. So yeah. we have to fight for outcomes yeah. and we have to accept that we will aim for 100 yeah. and we'll hit five or eight out of 100. And, and that's that we better keep than a, zero. Yeah. Because, because yeah. it's about, you know, you were talking about batting. Yeah. It isn't about the Shahid Afridi innings, yeah. man. Yeah. You cannot hit sixes. You can't get a wicket on every yeah. ball. You need Misbah yeah. to just Tuk tuk, you need Asad Shafiq. You need that tuk 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 to accumulate to keep getting runs on the board yeah. to keep rotating the strike. Yeah. So 2013, not the best outcome for a lot of people. Yeah. An amazing outcome for more people, yeah. right? I mean, <laughs> it's just factually. Yeah. But but whatever the outcome, there's some good stuff that's happened in the last yeah. couple of years, the last three years. And I think there's going to be good stuff that continues to happen True. over the next, you know, in the run-up to the election. Yes, there'll be patronage spending. Yes, development funds will be used, you know, in service of, in service of what, Yad? They're going to yeah. build roads. They're going to build farm-to-market roads. Yeah. They're going to build. They're going to build sewage uh, sort of facilities. They're yeah. going to do solar waste management. They're going to do stuff for the people. Yeah. Now, is there going to be corruption? One hundred percent. Right. There was corruption before. There's corruption. There's going to be corruption, especially at the local level. Yeah. And we don't know what the quantum is. None of it is acceptable, but it's going to be there. So, yeah. do we just lament the fact that there's corruption there, or do yeah. we say, you know what? Actually, there was like 50-odd bypasses that yeah. the 2011 Lahore Jalsa in October helped deliver, not mentioning the metro. Yeah. And in the run-up to the next election, there might be four or five more of those Jalsas. Yeah. And God knows how scared the Sharifs in the Punjab or yeah. the Zeris in uh, Balochistan or the PTI, in fact, yeah. in KP will be yeah. and how many things they'll end up building. Yeah. And some of it will be substandard. And yeah. we'll know that there were contractual sort of, you know, misdoings. Yeah. But a lot of it will endure the test of time it'll still be standing just like the 90s motorway is still the road yeah. we use to drive to Lahore yeah. and the, that motorway became the precursor to the M1 motorway which yeah. is what you use to drive up to Peshawar so it's not I mean it's not pretty but I don't want you going home and, and climbing into your bed and hiding under <laughs> I don't think I don't think any of us should be doing that yeah, I think yeah. it is a new year I think that every day is a new day yeah. and every time you wake up in the morning yeah. Pakistan is going to move forward inshallah inshallah all right, then, everybody, thank you so much for listening in. We'll be back soon. And let's sign off with Omar Adil's brilliant 
music. Well, let's not forget Talal Qureshi. And Talal Qureshi. Nigat and Paris from Adil and Talal. Khudafiz everyone, thanks for listening. Khudafiz.